What's up, UMass sports fans? I'm Sean Oldred, joined as always by Kyle Miller. This is another episode of the WMUA Basketball Show. We are joined today by a very special guest, the one and only Curry Hicks, Sage. Sage, how are you doing today? I'm great, and I'm sorry that I was that I totally forgot this. I was um, not. It's not personal. I just had a long work day. New York was crazy today. Was the uh, what appears to be some sort of terror attack in the subways. So. Um, I was a little skittish about taking the subway home and I was walking. I had walked like two and a half miles after going to the gym. And uh, then you guys texted me and I just got in a cab and I was like, I'm so sorry. So I, I, I scampered home and uh, making my popcorn in the background. I hope you don't mind. Um, sort of my patented trademark oh, on my shows. Um, but yeah, glad to be here. Sorry. Sorry. It's uh, taking me a little while to get this thing off the ground. No problem. So, you know, I think we all kind of know the way that this UMass coaching search has kind of panned out with Frank Martin. You've been a part of it. You know, what do you feel kind of like your role was in the coaching search? And do you feel like UMass Twitter kind of put pressure on administration, the athletic department to get this hire right? So a hundred percent, yes. But in saying that, this is a tricky answer a little because, you know, there's a way in which, I'm supposed to, or, or one is supposed to kind of handle these things where you're sort of supposed to feign like professionalism and, 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 you know, not give the fans too much credit and not sound like a crank delusional weirdo. Um, I embraced the search wholeheartedly and had planned to for many years, a little bit as almost like a bit because I just found it fascinating but also, in a serious way, I always was aware that fan pressure, um, fan engagement, and just kind of noise can help elevate the stature of a coaching search. I've followed these things at a lot of other programs. It's the one thing in the, in the sort of sports world that I still follow really closely. I've always found it fascinating. So... I 100% would be lying to you if I said I didn't go in with something of a plan. Now, how much the noise and the kind of continued noise helped, um, we'll never be able to say. Athletic directors, by their kind of nature, are a little bit reluctant to acknowledge fan input, even though it's a reality of, of the world. But my whole thing was like, if we want to be legit, this is the one moment where UMass Twitter and kind of like the fan, online fan community that has been, you know, kind of cultivated and grown over the last five, six, seven, eight years, whatever it is. This is the one moment when it could it could have a little bit of an impact. Right. And as fans, um, you know, like you can feel like there's a little bit of a passive passivity to this. Right. You just kind of root and you watch and. You know, you hope for the best and where, where can you have an impact? And the reality is I've always believed that like coaching searches are the one place where just kind of posting. So I'm kind of like, was always of the mind that this was the moment. And look, we've kind of built this community over the years organically and it's been a lot of fun. And, you know, we mostly just kind of banter back and forth all day. And we found this kind of weird odd collection of people on the internet who love, love these teams, but who have never 
had the same kind of um, power, quite frankly, as an SEC fan base, where there's just the volume is so intense in those places that they can't be ignored. And then that in turn kind of drives the earned media cycle with traditional news outlets like yourselves and others, um, because it kind of keeps the story alive. And, you know, the reality is, it's not like this. I said throughout the search, I was like, this is not the New York Yankees, you know, <laughs> like if you keep the pressure on, they're not going to be able to ignore you forever. And I believe firmly now, look, like I'll say from all sources I talked to, I think Bamford understood that he had to get a good hire and he, he found money to do that. He ended up spending more money than I think he had planned to. And got a better candidate. Um, so it's not all us, but I think if there, it's by any means, right? And he deserves credit for it. But if we were, if the fan base was just completely silent, um, as you sort of see, like even when BC was hiring their guy last year, like there was no noise from BC fans. There are no, there's a few. BC Twitter is like one eighth, one tenth the size of UMass Twitter, right? And it shows in their hire. So, I believe that that noise and the combination of like hounding the governor, hounding the school president, hounding the system president, just relentlessly talking about it night after night after night, where we did these spaces shows that took off and we were getting 500 people at times. And it became a little bit of chatter around the industry, the college basketball industry a little bit, not like at a high, high level, but a lot of the, you know, the top prep coaches and assistant coaches from all around the country and all those people were coming on. And then that was kind of generating more buzz and it just kept the sort of UMass gig as a thing. And like Frank Martin acknowledged UMass, you know, the fan base, like he, he pretty much, he didn't quite say UMass Twitter, but he pretty much did. And an assistant did. So yeah, I think we played a role. How much we'll never know. It's impossible to precisely quantify something like that. But I think anyone who says that UMass Twitter and the kind of just like, endless amount of noise that it generated in those four-ish weeks um i think i think it'd be it's undeniable that it played some some role i'm glad you brought up the spaces because i mean that has become a staple of umass twitter i mean there are nights you're putting up lebron numbers going in there going in with all the details getting ready to go what's kind of the origin story about these twitter spaces and how they came to be and how they kind of blossom because these are very popular. Like you said, 500 people are going. Hey, can you turn down? Sorry. My wife is, I, I heard something from my wife real quick. Um, my bad. You're getting a real window into my life here. Um, <laughs> so it's a great question. Um, we kind of had the, we had, we've had a podcast for basically the entire McCall tenure, about five years. And at some point when spaces began, which I want to say was it's probably over the summer. Yeah, um, it was very recent. Yeah, it's a new medium, but I kind of heard that they were looking into this. I had gotten a little bit into Clubhouse when that popped off for about a second. But the problem with Clubhouse was it was basically Twitter spaces, but you had to cultivate a completely new audience because they, you know, people who were on Twitter weren't yet on Clubhouse. So eventually they just got the idea and they basically did the same thing and all your fans, your fans or your friends or whatever were, were already there. So I um, just was like, this is a cool medium. I just know this is going to be a cool medium. 
And I just kind of started doing it and I don't, it just very organically grew. And then we started doing it for like post games during the hoop season. Cause that's a very like logical medium. You know, you just kind of talk, you rap. It's very good for like rapid reaction stuff. But when the search came, I was like, so as the season built, I kind of said on the spaces, which were well attended, but not like at nearly as well attended once the firing started. I was like, once, because it kind of, you kind of knew that the McCall thing was coming, right? And it was by February, I was Absolutely. like, so by February, I was like already doing a lot of independent digging and like hitting up all my sources from, you know, years of following this stuff and like just being like, look, I'm telling you, like, it sounds a little weird. It sounds a little delusional, but like, I'm going to, try to do whatever I can to get a good hire. And I think this platform is going to be part of that. And so that kind of like got me more people and then sort of people started following. And once there was like a loss to maybe GW, there was a bad, yeah, that bad GW loss in February. It was like super clear that it was kind of like the, the McCall tenure had was like on its last legs. And so I just started talking at that point about, you know, who, who would be a replacement. And we started throwing around names and, and then the moment that McCall and, and I'll, I'll tell you, I was on a flight back from Chicago. We made this a podcast episode. You can listen to it. It was, it was a spaces recording, but um, I was like, I started writing on the way back, like what I was going to say when McCall got fired and then he did. And so I was a little, I hadn't finished writing it, but I was like, okay, like let's rock and roll. And I just jumped in and I was like, here are the 10, like, here's where I want to go with the search. Here are the types of candidates we need to look at. Here are the 30 names that we need to be vetting. Here are the, this. And so from there, by like setting, by, by kind of laying that out right on night one. And remember McCall was cut like two weeks before the season ended. So you kind of gave yourselves as a, from like a content perspective, you, it, we had an extra couple of weeks to kind of make this interesting. And so from there, after I laid it all out, then I had tons of people reaching out, not only sources, but also like UMass fans who were like, hey, how can I help? So then I'd be so that was where like the community that we had already cultivated really came in and was super helpful because they'd be like, how can I help? And I'd be like, all right, find out who, you know, such and such candidates agent is and find out like what other search firm, what search firm was involved in that, you know, so we just be doing some crazy ass, like it became fun. It became a little bit of a, um, kind of like true crime, right? Like I hate to, it's a, it's a, a deep, it was a deep, this sounds like a deep dive into it. We, we, we basically, I hate to say it this way because it sounds weird. We, we gamified it, right. We made it like fun. We, we created, you know, and you got to have some fun with it. And I think like, my overarching philosophy and where I bring a, le a level of, I guess the word would be privilege. I hate to say it, but like, cause it's such an overused word, but like, I don't really want to work in college sports. I don't really have an interest in working in professional sports. I have a good job. Like I live in, you know, I have a nice life. I have two kids, whatever. Like, so for me, you know, I always say buddy Garrity from Friday night lights. If you've ever watched the TV show, you can't fake boosterism. It comes from the heart. That's what he said to Eric, to Coach Taylor. It's a great and quote. It's so, because when people try to get their arms around me, like, what am I doing? What am I, you know, I hate to 
veer off here and not answer your question, but I'm going on a tangent. And they say, what are you doing here, Sage? Like, what, what? It's like, that's it, dude. Like, it's pure. It's pure. And the reason you, I could go so hard with it is because as weird as it sounds, it's pure. I didn't go to UMass. I don't have anyone to alienate. Like, who, what are they going to do to me? You know, and when you're in that position, you, you have a little bit of like, I don't want to say moral power or moral superiority, but you don't like you guys have to kind of maintain ties with people because you need access and there's stuff you need. Like that's part of life. I have that in my day job and my, you know, like I get it. But for this, I was like, no, I just want my, the team I grew up rooting for when I was eight, nine and 10, that was number one in the country to be awesome. And this is fun. And I find the industry fascinating and I've always followed it. So I was like, let's go. And people just like gravitated towards that. Cause they were like, Oh, this is cool. And then they would help me. And you know, I'd get, I mean, the number of people I met along the way or met, like I should say, talked to privately, it's just like names and and contacts that I just never would have thought I would ever get access to, you know, like really interesting. Because what one of the things you realize about this is and I would recommend it to you guys if you know whatever your thing is, but there's a zillion people who cover the Patriots and Celtics and, you know, and it's like, that's cool. If that's your thing, you know, but there's just, there's guys who knew it 20 years. And right. Like if you have a kind of a niche interest, like UMass basketball and you followed it for almost 30 years and you've had a platform on Twitter and whatever, well, all of a sudden, once every five years or whenever there's a head coaching search, you know, there's only a hundred or 200 jobs in the country in college basketball that are going to pay even above 500,000, probably 75 to a hundred that'll pay a million or above. Right. So, yeah. and there's a ton of dudes who want these jobs, like really high level people, you know, stars at different places and, you know, big names. And so all of a sudden, like if you have a little or perceive that anyway, as having a little juice or a little influence, you just become like a, someone that people want to talk to. And I just embraced that because I knew it wasn't going to come, you know, I knew it was, a unique experience. And I was like, I'm just going to go all in with this. And um, yeah, I don't even know what question I'm answering at this point, but I just got lost in it. I got completely lost in it. Like to the point where I was like, what is wrong with me? Like, this is just, you know, <laughs> but, but at the same time, like you can't fake boosterism and you know, it comes from the heart. And so that's just how I'm, you know, that's kind of how I am. Like if I get really into a thing, I just get, and I hadn't gotten into thing like that in a while. So, and it, you know, it's also like, I have a two-year-old who's got some lung stuff. So during the pandemic, like we're, I'm still not going out a ton. And it's just like, you know, I was like the time it was the winter, you know, it's like, it was just everything hit. It was like a perfect, it was a confluence of circumstances. And I just was like, fuck it. I, I don't really care how I'm going to be perceived. I'll just go with it. Yeah, so you kind of talked about this a little bit about like it being pure and this love for UMass basketball. Um, kind of where did that start for you? Was it just growing up in Western Mass in the Cal era of UMass yeah. basketball? Yes, yes, and yes. I mean, I don't, I don't think you can like it's 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 weird because I'm 36 and I don't I don't like, I don't know what that means. Like I don't know how like a 20 something perceives a 36 year old. I feel like I was in college not that long ago, but I guess it's been, you know, 14 years since I graduated. But as a kid, um, very unique time because for this was just before the Boston pro teams got good. 
and just after Larry Bird retired. So the Dark Ages. To, what? The Dark Ages of Boston sports right there. Exactly. It was this very unique period. The Red Sox had a good year in 95. Um, Tim Wakefield's first year with the Red Sox. Um, are you guys old enough to know Wakefield? Oh, yeah. of course. Yeah, okay, okay. So, um, you know, he had this dazzling first when he was like came out of the pirate system out of nowhere and just like had like 20 wins. It was wild. But, um, you know, there's some highlights. But basically, you know, the Patriots – Patriots got good like shortly after they made a Super Bowl in probably like 97, 98. Um, but there was this window where everything kind of sucked. And here I was. And there's like research on this, apparently, that the most formative years for a young sports fan when they get hooked on things are eight, nine and ten. And so for the for considerable chunks of three seasons and I think the better part of two. You from 94, 95, 96, UMass was the number one team in America, right? Like when I'm eight, nine, and 10 years old, John Calipari is in his first head coaching job. Marcus Camby, the consensus national player of the year. There's only been like 15, 20 of those ever, you know? It, and, and the Mullen Center, and you can ask anybody this, it's not just me, like, you know, I tweeted something the other day and like so many people were, were responding like this. It was just unfathomably electric. Like you would drive over the bridge going from, you know, Northampton to Amherst and all of Route 9 would be dotted with uh, signage, right? Like outside of, you know, whatever it would be, the liquor store, the hotel, whatever, every store had you know like on the what's it called the awning or whatever you know like at a movie theater like on the marquee right and it would just say like and and like sometimes fairly detailed message would be like welcome dickie v you know beat wake forest like what every sign like or and like i think you know as the team that year was going toward undefeated it'd be like 22 and 0 24 and 0. like and so the entire pioneer valley but, you know, was really the whole state was just completely transfixed with these teams. And so to be coming up as a young sports fan, when, you know, Western Mass pretty sleepy place in many ways. And if you're a young sports fan, like, and you grow up like, yeah, we would go to Red Sox games, you know, but it's a, it's a haul, you know, it's like an hour and 40 minutes. And if you're seven, eight, nine, 10 years old, that's a long car ride, you know, as a kid. Here you have in your backyard the number one team in the country. And this is at a time, you know, just before the Internet really blew up. Um, like I didn't get America. I didn't get America online AOL until seventh grade. I was a little late, but like that was 98. So, you know, it's just like this time where sports, you know, you the way people consumed sports was like, it was like the local newspaper. Everything was like built around the game that week, you know, and it wasn't like you didn't have it's it's making me feel really old because I'm, I'm really not that old. But like this is way before streaming. This is way before, you know, all these like ESPN plus and all that. And it's just like that was like how you'd structure your weeks and your winters. And I mean, getting a ticket was damn near impossible. Um, so, you know, just just that energy and that electricity, it just never faded. It just, you know, 
And for whatever reason, like, I mean, I was a Knicks fan too, interestingly, because my dad had grown up in New York and then my parents moved to Western Mass when they were in their twenties. But, um, so I, you know, but for whatever reason, like the UMass thing just, just stayed. And I, I just think it was like, maybe that I just was able to really see it, you know, like I was, yeah, I went to a Knicks game here or there, but we, we shared season tickets and it was just, that place was just bedlam. Like the Mullen Center was just insanely loud. Like you can't even imagine it. It was just, I'll never forget it. And, and, you know, for better or for worse, here we are 25, 26 years later and I'm still hooked. So it's funny, actually, like we kind of have similar ish stories in that respect, you know, obviously not the same type of level of success that I saw when I was younger, but I was growing up in Western mass when, you know, the Chaz Williams, Raphael Putney, you know, Caddy Lalane teams, they made the tournament and it did the same thing to me. It totally hooked me on college basketball. Um, you know, obviously different level of success, but I mean, the Mullen no, Center, I remember great, going. Listen, that was a great year. It was a special year. They, they sold out five, six, seven games. And yeah, you know, I mean, you got the buzz. yeah, perfect. My first, like, you know, I don't know, like time where I felt like that buzz in the Mullen Center was it was sold out. They beat VCU. I Great think they game. were both ranked inside the top 25. It was an awesome game. Shaka Smart and like the Havoc VCU teams. DK had that team rolling. I mean, Amazing was, environment. Amazing yeah. environment. I came up from New York. I remember that was the day that I was getting, I had a taste taste test for my, or tasting for my wedding. And so I had to drive up after the tasting and I missed the first half. Um, we were going like 90. <laughs> through the Berkshires we went a weird way and my wife and she knew she was like he has to be there she got it and she literally dropped me we were supposed to she dropped me off and then like I, I think I got a ride home from someone but um unbelievable atmosphere like so that was every night you know in the in the in the Camby and in, in Luro and Cal era so but yeah I mean you got a sense of it and and like that's what I just want it to be. And I think there's, there actually objectively, I think is something really unique about UMass basketball when it's good, because, you know, Western mass. Yes. UMass represents the state of Massachusetts. Um, but Western mass is like a different type of place. And when UMass is rolling, that's really the only game within I mean, kind of like 60 miles in any direction other than maybe, you know, I guess UConn would be like, you know, there. But you, there's a lot of people who are looking for, you know, they, they're bandwagon jumpers, but they're they're looking to jump on. In, in, and they, that goes up to like parts of Vermont, parts of Keene, New Hampshire, you know, like there's kind of a there ain't much going on around there, but there's enough people that when they get good. Like it, it gets exciting quick. So when you talked about a lot about the atmosphere and how they would have the marquee, the people be coming in from miles and miles to watch this UMass basketball team play. And there's been a steady decline from that. Now with Frank Martin coming in, what would you say to have, what would you do to bring the people back? I mean, other than winning, because we know if you win, people are going to come no matter what, but besides from winning, what would you do to have more people show up at the Mullins games for these, for these teams? You know, it's hard 
I wish I had a, I wish I had an answer. And these are kind of debates that if you've been sort of on UMass Twitter or in, in before that, it was like, there was a, there's still a message board, UMassHoops.com or these are debates that we've kind of been like going back and forth on for 15, 20 years. And, you know, I also want to say these are, these are, there are structural broader forces at play in that UMass fans have a tendency like many fan bases, I think, to think of all of our, you know, problems or challenges as unique to UMass and, you know, take a look at the BC attendance, right? They can't sell out Duke. Right. Um, and, and by the way, like Kentucky doesn't sell out every game anymore. I mean, it's a much bigger arena. Um, I've been to games at North Carolina, you know, I've been to a game in North Carolina. It's not as crazy as you'd think. Right. And so college sports, I think are a harder sell than they once were. Um, pro sports probably are to some extent, you know, you've got everything streaming. Um, you know, so there's, 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 I just want to point out that it's not just like, Oh, like the UMass fan base. But one thing I think like you got to start with, and I think where Frank is really going to be good is that like, he loves pounding the pavement and just off making authentic connections with people. Right. And you can see it. You can see it. And that, that's a huge thing in Western mass where people are a little bit distrustful. It's like, you know, there's a little bit of this, like, you know, a lot of people have been in, been there forever and they're like, oh, who's the new guy in town? Like, we'll see, you know, and they don't really want to get excited quickly. But Frank is sort of a salt of the earth, like and he's done a very good job striking the right chords about um, Western Mass and hard work. And like, it's a little cliche like any coach, but he's he he's, makes it pretty convincing. And I think you can't discount the importance of just old school so like a little bit like a retail politician, you, you, you knock on doors, you kiss babies, you, you shake hands, you show up. And Frank definitely gets that. And in, and there's a ripple effect, right? You do 10, 15 events or whatever in the off season. And now, you know, at each of those, you might make five lasting fans, but then those five people tell five other people. And then when you start winning, then it just multiplies very quickly. It but I've always believed that, you know, UMass needs to do a better job and, and, and take a more conscientious approach toward cultivating um, essentially a uh, like expanding its season ticket holder and kind of core base, because you what these other programs like a Dayton and some others have that UMass doesn't anymore is a core base that's going to be there through the good times and the bad, no matter what. And while that exists like on the internet for UMass, partly because the Boston area, which is where the preponderance of UMass fans and alums are located, is is relatively far from Amherst. We don't have the same kind of in-person ticket buying commitment. And I think, Frank, it'll be really interesting to see what their season ticket numbers, you know, what how, how much it goes up, because that is what you need. And because like John Calipari used to say, you need a love, you need to create a love affair with UMass basketball and the fans. And part of that was like just getting people engaged so that they felt invested in this. And I, and I frankly see in a small sense, like UMass Twitter and the fun we have as like a vehicle for doing that. Uh, it's just, it's, it's gotta be about, it can't just be about the product, right? 
the, the teams change every year. There's transfers. Like it's, you've got to create a community environment and like a kind of a, we're all in this together. And this is like something that matters here. And, and it's a, it's like, it's a point of pride and it's, and I think Frank will will do a good job of that. And then there's just like, I think you got to sell kids in terms that kids understand. Right. And like, you just got to get kids in seats. And then from there, like enough of them, I think sometimes, there's a tendency to be like, you need 150 kids, 200 kids, 300 kids. You don't need 2000 who will show up at a, at a game because they were like, Lord there by the promise of a free t-shirt, right? Like get, get cultivate a rabid group and others will follow. Um, and I do think, you know, somebody I was talking to was really perceptive about this stuff was making the point that they were talking about some old UMass teams from many years ago. And they were talking about a combination of team guys that were like a lot of the kids were themselves invested in campus. And like, I think when you get kids who are involved at the school, that matters. Um, so yeah, I don't know if I answered your question. I, I keep getting, you guys can cut me off at any point. No, it's been perfect. I mean, speaking of Frank Martin who the influence that he has and the reach that he has, I've never seen a head coach in any sport, any division level, nothing who is on Twitter and retweets as much as he does. He's a Twitter machine. It's well, that's and it's cool new. to see. It is new. It is it's new. What's, yeah, what's interesting is he's consciously embraced that since getting hired. And I'd like to think that the volume of, um, of activity um, is, uh, you know, is somewhat a function of like the, the number of people on UMass Twitter who've been engaging with him, but either way, yeah, it's good. And it gets, you know, it, it just like, it gets his, I always talk about like a hypothetical casual UMass fan who there's a lot more people than you realize it. You're in hall in the summer, right? Beach yes, town, yes. right? Big time. Now you see a guy at the beach, whether he's a local or maybe a summer guy from another part of the state from the Boston area. And you say, and you're wearing a UMass basketball hat or T-shirt or whatever. And the guy comes up and he says, oh, UMass, like, who's the coach over there now? And, and, and sometimes they'll go, what is it, the young kid who was uh, worked for Billy Donovan? You know, that was like the Matt McCall answer. Not everybody knows that, but there's a knowledgeable enough sports fan who doesn't really watch UMass games but is attuned enough to, like, one factoid. Right. That just like, you know, but if Matt, if the Billy Donovan kid doesn't, you know, win, then it's just like, oh, some kid who worked for Billy Donovan is at UMass and he's struggling. Well, now Frank Martin, like, is a name. It's a name that, you know, it's like and and it's a name that very quickly you're just like, yeah, you know, Frank Martin, you know, the, the, the tough ass guy with all those great videos about you know, viral videos about this, that, and the other, or, you know, the, you know, the guy who took South Carolina to a final four a few years ago it was five years ago, but like, they don't, you know, time is whatever when you're 55 or whatever, you know? And so that kind of credibility is like automatically gets a casual fan interested or at least curious. Now they come across a Frank tweet and they're like, whatever. They're like, okay, I'll follow him. Now they follow a couple more people. Right. And then in time, like 
It's like, let's go to a UMass game one weekend. And now the schedule comes out and there's a halfway decent team on the calendar. And it's a Saturday after Thanksgiving. And now people are already getting those tickets. And now you open the year against teams and you're 4-0 or 5-0. and And it's like, hey, Frank Martin's coaching at UMass. They're undefeated to start the year. Let's get up there for that game after Thanksgiving. And it's just like, that is the way that the Frank Martin name just allows you to build quicker because the barrier to entry for the casual fan is, is, is much lower, whether that's fair or not, you know, is like, you know, a matter of debate, but it is a reality. Um, You know, so it's like, this is a professional, this is a person with a certain amount of brand cachet and credibility among just sports fans in the region. And, you know, many of them might have not have gone to a UMass game in three, four, five, six years. But some of them might have kids at UMass, might have. Like, so it's just like that. And, and also he spent time at Northeastern. He's well known by a lot of AAU coach near it. So people kind of just in the basketball scene around here know him. And that spreads, you know. Um, so, yeah, again, don't know if I answered your question, but uh, feel free to redirect me. No, you're good. I mean, I think you, know, you talked about the credibility he kind of brings. He's now got two guys that he's brought up from South Carolina. Have you gotten the chance to look at Wilden Slovak or Tuan Woodley at all? Um, yeah, I mean, look. Do you think UMass is done in the portal, or do you think no. they, go, they go back there? I think they probably get one more. I think they'll probably – but I wouldn't mind if they went for two true freshmen either. Um, actually, no. My preference would be that they get one more scoring – that they get a scoring guard – you know, ideally it's like sort of a bigger guard who can, you know, put the ball on the floor a bit. And I think that's the final piece that would make next year's team pretty good right away. Um, Levesque and uh, Woodley, you know, both like SEC bodies, solid. Woodley is a true freshman, so his numbers are, you know, hard to detect, especially in a year in which like so many guys, because of COVID, it was a much older college basketball. He'll be solid. I think he's, you know, his high school tape is really impressive. He played at a really, you know, a good program in Camden, New Jersey. He'll be fine. I think he'll be good. I'm not projecting him like to be a first team, all a 10, 17 and nine guy by his senior year. But I'd be, I would also be surprised if he doesn't chart plot out and, you know, to like an eight and six guy. And this year he could easily be a, 5.7 5.7 and 4 point. Like he'll be a solid post piece, no doubt. And Levesque is just, you know, I think he's got two years of eligibility. He's like yep. a seven and six guy, really athletic, four star recruit out of high school. And I think him transitioning to the A10 will go from being like a seven and six guy to an 11 and eight guy very, very, very easily. I mean, you know, you don't want to put too many expectations on the kid, but like, that's just a really nice there's of the 15 teams in the, in the Atlantic 10, you know, there might be like three that can like that. He won't be able to like, he'll just be able to be an automatic presence against virtually any big man in the league. And that defensively and offensively, he'll be like very, very quality could, could compete for like a third team, all league spot, really good pickup. Still think that, you know, Noah's going to be really good. TJ's still good. Still think you need one more piece as a scorer to kind of 
take this to the place where I think some people wrongly think it already is. It's not easy to win in the Atlantic 10 and next year's Atlantic 10 is going to be a lot better than this past year's Atlantic 10, not only because of the new coaches, because of certain teams return a lot of talent and also gets guys back from injury. So you can't just like roll out to like serviceable SEC bigs who are not by any means dominant. And then like hope for the best with TJ and Noah in the backcourt and think you're a top four team in the A-10. You need one, probably two more solid pieces, but they're on their way. Agreed. I, I mean, I think they're slowly getting there. You mentioned the guard play. I think that's one thing that they definitely need to upgrade. It went from, you know, last year having a lot of guards, um, it being a strength of the team, the big men were kind of weak to now. I think they need, they definitely need another scoring guard, somebody to handle the ball with Noah. Um, it'd be almost nice if they had a Rich Kelly type player to come back again, but we'll see what happens. Sage, thank you so much for coming on um, with us. It's been, you know, a great little bit. We'll, uh, this will be up on all our social media everywhere. Check us out, WMUA Sports. Again, I'm Sean Oldred signing off for Kyle Miller and the one and only Curry Hicks Sage. Thank you. This has been another episode of the UMass Basketball Show on 91.1 WMUA.